Well, I don't know about you, but that song kind of wrecked me today. And looking forward to this. I'm not sure if it was just all the work this week to talk about, to think about the cross and talking to you about it today. And, and just uh, coming to the conclusion the cross is all about love. It's all about love. And we're going to end there today as we focus on the reality of the cross. But before we do, just bow your heads and let's pray. Father, I know that your word is powerful and that you say that it never returns void. And so I pray today, Father, in this time that we have, that as we listen to your word and as we focus on the cross of Christ, that that reality, what you accomplished there, will be so embedded in our hearts and our minds that, Father, this will be one of those days that we mark in our calendars and our journals as a day when we saw you in a new way and you gave us strength that we never thought was possible. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you would, uh, go ahead and grab your message notes out of your program and you can follow along today in the uh, talk as we're looking at the reality and the truth of the cross this morning. They look like this, and uh, the Bible verses will be here. Today we're going to be in one specific passage from the Bible, so if you have your Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at that today because the message just suited itself uh, to be there in that one place. So if you want to open it up and maybe take some notes there, or you'll have those message notes, you can do that as well. Now, when I was thinking about the cross, and I was thinking about the reality of the cross, uh, I, I was just wondering, and, uh, because it's amazing that Christianity and God led the Christian faith to choose the cross as its primary symbol when you think about it. I mean, the cross was an instrument of shame, humiliation, punishment, pain, and death. That's what a cross represented. One person said this about the cross. The cross is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted the victim could suffer for days before dying ultimately of asphyxiation. So that was the reality of the cross. But in Christianity, the cross represents something different. It doesn't represent necessarily a torturous death. The, car, the cross represents the heart of the message of Jesus Christ. The cross represents the reason that Jesus came to earth. The cross represents the pain and suffering that he went through on our behalf. But the cross wasn't always the symbol used by followers of Christ to identify themselves with Jesus, with his message. So in the first decades after Jesus was resurrected and then ascended to be back with his father, as this new movement was getting started, uh, people were looking for ways to identify themselves as followers of Christ. So, you know, in the first decades, or 10 to 20 years after Jesus has ascended, uh, they avoided association with the cross because if they associated themselves with the cross, they would be associating themselves with the person who had just been killed on a cross. And so they didn't want to associate themselves with that. And also they'd be associating themselves with this cruel form of punishment that was only uh, for the vilest of offenders and criminals of that day. 
In fact, for fear of their lives, the very first followers of Christ, they used symbols uh, that weren't so easily recognizable as a cross. And I just want to show you some of those as I kind of get to this. Uh, early on, and I didn't have any pictures of this, so before I get to the one on the screen right now, uh, early on that when they were making references to themselves about being Christians or followers of Christ, they'd use like a peacock. You would see, in, you look in some of the catacombs, you see drawings of peacocks that would symbolize their relationship with Christ. Uh, they would use a, a powerful, you know, victorious hand. Uh, they would use a picture of a dove uh, also to show that they were followers of Christ. But as they started looking at symbols that we can look at that took hold, okay, that kind of took hold, uh, the first one that we see is an anchor. And so the anchor was one that uh, actually is biblical. It comes from uh, Hebrews 6.19 that says that this hope, which is an anchor for our souls, and so they would see the anchor as that which would hold them stable. And it always had to be in this form, okay? So no artsy stuff here. It always had to be in this form where you would have a cross on it. So they actually, even though it's an anchor, they knew it symbolized the cross. And then they, it kind of evolved and, okay, we want another symbol. And then another symbol that they would use uh, was a ship. And so a ship, uh, it symbolized the fact that Jesus came to carry us on to another place, but also a ship has a mast at the top, and at the top of the mast, it has a cross there. And so they would have this cross, a ship would represent the cross. And so if you saw somebody and they had a home and they had maybe a picture of a ship like this, you would be able to recognize them as followers of Christ in some way. So that was a symbol. And then the next symbol that they used was a, a, what we call, you know, an ichthus or a fish. And uh, the Greek word, because, you know, they all, you know, had the Greek language, everything was in writing of that day. And so uh, this, the letters there, uh, that is ichthus, and this is fish, that's what it means, is fish. And they took those letters, and those letters identified themselves with Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior is what those words came to mean. That's the first letter of those words that they were looking at. So they would have a fish and it would identify themselves with somebody who believed Jesus Christ, God's son, Savior. And so that they would see that that was somebody who was, that they could rely on. Now, over time though, the fish kind of lost its way because, you know, kind of odd to be think we're people of the fish, right? So it wasn't people, you know, so, okay, we got to something, have something better than a fish. But then somewhere around the fourth century, uh, Constantine, uh, who was going to battle and going to wars, he had a vision. And part of that vision was of a cross. And that cross uh, became something that he hung on to because he had victory that day in the war that he was having. And so the cross became a symbol that was used, a popular symbol of the day. Constantine used that. And then over time, the church adopted that as their symbol for Christianity as well. It's about the sixth century that uh, the Catholic church actually adopted the crucifix that would have Jesus on the cross as well. But typically, Christianity has adopted the cross as their symbol for what Jesus Christ has done. Now, very few historians or scholars try to dispute the reality of the cross and that Jesus died there. So they don't dispute that at all. It's a matter of historical fact. You can go read the historical documents today and you can discover that Jesus did, in fact, was a man who lived, who died on the cross. The thing that is debated, though, which really gets the temperature rising for some people, is why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did he have to die on the cross? I mean, I, I, honestly, I think that's a pretty reasonable question, right? Why did he have to die on the cross? You think about it. If God is all-powerful, if God is all-knowing, and if God is all-loving, 
why would, why would he have as the central part of his plan to redeem the world a tool that had such horrendous uh, implications as the, and a method of death that would be the most excruciating that actually a person could go through in that day. Why would he choose the cross? So cruel that Romans wouldn't even allow their own citizens to be executed on cross unless they had you know, committed some of the most horrendous of crimes. Now, if you're really honest this morning and you want to ask questions about the cross, uh, we think about you know, Jesus having to die on the cross, and, and you look at that, just being real honest, you ask questions like this. Well, Ron, couldn't God have just kind of winked at us and let our sin go? Couldn't, since he's all-knowing, all-powerful, couldn't he just blinked and kind of overlooked the sin that we had? Why couldn't God just look at people and say, I forgive them? I mean, he asked us to do that. He asked us to look at people and forgive them. Why couldn't God look at people and just say, I forgive them? Why couldn't God's plan just be that he wanted us to come before him and line up in a line and just come and say, we're sorry, God. And he says, okay, you're forgiven. Why wasn't that his plan? Why couldn't God have given us this list of rules that we would keep these rules and we would, you know, kind of earn merit like Boy Scouts do with their merit badges? Why couldn't that be the way that God chose to forgive us? Well, the answer is because. That's it. It's because. That's the answer. Okay? But what I want to do is I want to talk about this. Why did Jesus have to die? And I want to give you two becauses, okay, that will help us understand why it was that Jesus had to die. And here's the answer. Why did Jesus have to die first? Because we need to be made right with God. Because we need to be made right with God. Uh, here's uh, several verses I put together from Romans chapter 3 before we actually dig in and look at it section by section. But it, all these talk about this need that we have. As the scriptures say, no, <clears throat> no one is righteous. Go ahead and circle that word on your notes. No one is righteous, not even one. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are for all of sin and all fall short of the glory of God. So you think about that word righteous. That word righteous basically means a right standing with God. It means a right standing with God. In fact, I just want you to walk out of here knowing at least that much today. So I'm going to ask if you would, if you'll say that out loud with me right now. A right standing with God. I'm not sure you got it yet. One more time. A right standing with God. So that's what the word righteous means. And that's what he says that we don't have is a right standing with God. So here's the deal. God is perfect and we're not. Duh. Wake up call. God is perfect and we're not. In order for God's perfect, holy righteousness to be in relationship with our imperfect, sinful lack of righteousness, God has to either overlook it or, and here's where it gets complicated, or something has to happen that would make us right with God, make us righteous. And so you said, uh, just simple questions you might ask is this, is it, well, Ron, how good do you have to be to be righteous? How good do you have to be to be righteous? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Okay, here we go. Here it is. Perfect. You have to be perfect in order to be righteous. So we got that. We have to be perfect in order to be right with God. And according to these verses we just read, nobody is 
perfect. Nobody's perfect. We've all sinned. No matter how hard you try to do what, do right in life, you can never make up for the fact that you have sinned. In fact, the you know tenses that Paul uses and you know the Greek language is amazing, and uh, that's why I love the Bible and just studying it. But the Greek language, uh, the tenses that Paul uses in these verses indicates this about sin. Here, here we go. You've got to understand this. Here's what he's saying about all of us. Somewhere in your past, you have sinned. So it's a past event. Somewhere in your past, you have sinned. And consequently, now in this present time, you fall short. So somewhere in your past, you've sinned. And now consequently, in this present time, you fall short or you don't live up to God's standards or God's requirements. Somewhere in your past, you sin, And consequently today, you cannot be called perfect or right with God. Now, uh, many of you uh, would know this, that when the Bible has the word sin, it comes from a Greek word, hamartia, and that word is used uh, specifically, the picture is, it's an archery term, um, and the New Testament, so it's talking about archery, and so it was, refu- it was um, uh, actually referring to the fact that when you, shoot, when you would shoot your bow, when you would shoot the arrow, that if you were aiming for the bullseye and you missed it, that you missed the mark, so that was hamartia, and you've sinned, and so you've missed the mark, so that's what they were talking about in this day, so let's just say, Let's just say that you were going to get a chance to shoot a bunch of arrows. And so they had a contest on this certain day and they got uh, you with a bunch of quivers of arrows and they gave you your bow and they had a target there. And they say that your job is to hit the center of that target every time. And so, you know, kind of feeling that center of the target every time you cannot miss. And so for you get your, your bow and you pull back on that arrow and you get it there and you're going every time time and you miss on the first time and you miss on the first time you say okay okay i gotta i gotta do and so you get another bow and you pull back on that air on that um arrow and you pull back on that bow and you let it go and it hits the center and then from then on for every quiver they get you you're able to hit the center of that target every single time until it's dark and you cannot shoot anymore because you can't even see the target were you perfect? No. One miss, one miss makes it impossible to be perfect. And here's what the Bible says to us that we need to know. The Bible says that we've all missed at least once. Some of us more than once. (laughs) All of us once. Here's the deal. We're all in the same bucket. Every one of us. We're all sinners in the same bucket. Somewhere in our past, we've all messed up. We've all sinned. And if you don't believe you've sinned, just ask your closest relative, okay? <laughs> and I'm sure they've got a list that they'd be willing to give you. Uh, I was reading this week, and I just love some uh, people are so creative in the way that they write. And this person was writing, and he says this, when talking about sin, he says, we're not mistakers who can be excused. So we want, to, we want to think that we just make mistakes, right? We want to soften the whole thing and say we're mistakers. Well, when you mistake, make a mistake, it means you just, you know, you didn't either know how to do it or you didn't have all the resources you need or, you know, you stumbled. It just, you know, I, I made a mistake in some way. You know, you kid didn't do better because you really couldn't do better. But here's the deal. The Bible doesn't say we're mistakers. The Bible says we're sinners and sinners need a savior. Now, I make mistakes, but I am a sinner. 
I make mistakes, but I am a sinner. One is what I do, the other is who I am. And Jesus came to set me free from who I am. He came to change my identity, he came to change that. We've all sinned, and because the standard is, standard is perfection, and there's nothing we can do about it, then we need a Savior. We need to be made right with God, and that's why Jesus came to die. Second reason. Jesus came to die because I needed supernatural grace, because I couldn't do anything about my condition. I needed to be made right with God, and I couldn't do anything to get right with God. And so I needed his supernatural gift. I needed someone to accomplish for me what I could not accomplish on my own, no matter how hard I tried. Romans 3, verse 21 through 24. But now righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. So what Paul's saying here, and it's just a kind of a new deal for the people of his age and the people of his day, and for some of you, it may be a new deal today as you hear about this today, is that God has made a way for you to be right with him. God made it possible, and he made it possible through the death of his Christ, of death of his son, for you to be made right with him. He says you can be made right with God, he says, by faith in Christ, and it's not the result of what you've done. It's a gift from God. Now, I want to tell you about three things about grace that we can all receive today as a gift. Three things about God's supernatural grace that we need to know. One is it's unearned. It's unearned. Grace is not through activity and work and effort. Grace comes simply through Jesus Christ. It comes through him. See, up until now, when he says it's apart from the law, is that people believed they were only acceptable to God by the way that they kept the law. And so as they earned his favor, then they were acceptable to him. And so he's saying, no, there's a new thing. There's a new deal coming. Apart from the law, you can be made right with God in this new deal because of what Jesus Christ has done. Second, it's by faith. It's not by performance. It's by faith. It's not by doing, but it's by believing. It's for all who believe, and I love this part, not for all who perform well. All who believe, not for all who perform well, not for all who are good, not for all who get their act together, not for all who can just please God, but for all who believe, all who believe. Now, some of us, we don't think we're acceptable to God. In fact, uh, it's just fascinating to me that uh, I hear people talk, and they say, you know, I, I, I drive by the church, and this is, some, you know, maybe somebody telling me after they've been driving by for a long time, I drive by the church, you know, and I see people driving in, and I see people driving out, and I see them walking in, and I see them walking out, and they all look so perfect. <laughs> Tell you what, we can cover up a lot of uglies, can't we? They all look so perfect, they say, if they only knew, okay? And they come in, they find out it's not true. That's for sure. But here's the deal. It's not by how we look. It's by what Christ did for us. It's through faith. It's about a belief and putting trust in him. And then lastly, it's free. That's what grace is. It's free. It's free. Jesus made it possible for us to be made right with God on the cross by his death, and it's a free gift. Now, you know that anytime you get a gift... It's never free, right? 
it costs someone something. And so even though the gift is free to us who receive, the cross shows us how much that God was willing to pay so that we could be made right with him, brought into right relationship with him. So how did he do that? What did the death of Jesus do that I could not do? What did the death of Jesus accomplish that I could not accomplish for myself? And that's what I want to look at in the rest of the time we have together. So backside of your notes, you want to fill these in as we look through this. First of all, I want to read these verses from Romans 3, 23 through 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption. If you've got your notes, circle that word redemption. Through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, circle that word, atonement, through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies, circle that word, justifies, those who have faith in Jesus. So I want to give three things from these verses that the cross accomplished for me And then one more from another section where Paul is writing about the forgiveness we have in Christ. So three things. The first thing the cross made possible, accomplished for me that I could not accomplish on my own, is that the cross set me free. God set me free. He set me free. And the phrase is through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, you might want to write this down somewhere if you have any room there. That word redemption means to make payment for, to redeem, or to release by paying a price. So make payment for, to redeem, or to release by paying a price. Now, the best way to understand it is probably to understand what it means to the original listeners or readers of this book. It's a Roman culture. Paul's writing to Rome, and he's talking about things that Romans would understand. And so he uses a word here that they would all understand because the Roman culture was a culture of slaves and owners, slaves and owners, slaves and owners. And so what would happen is, is that they would have auctions and they would take auctions to the auction, I mean, slaves to the auction block and the owners would come and they would bid on the slave. And then at the moment that they, their bid was accepted, they paid a price and that was the redemption price. They paid the price, and so at that moment, they owned the slave, and then this is the option they had. They had an option. One, to go ahead and put that slave to work, and then to make him do what he or her do, what they needed him or her to do, or they had this option, and I don't know how many times this ever happened, but I would tend to think it would happen at least one time, is that that owner could actually release that slave, release the slave, and set that slave free. And what Paul wants us to know is that God paid the purchase price. He paid the redemption price so that we could be set free. How many of you guys have seen the new uh, Les Miserables movie? You know, the, the new one that's out, the musical. Not many of you. It's out on DVD this weekend, so you might want to watch it. Okay, so um, I've not seen it either, but I, did ha- I do know the story so well that I went out and find a clip from the new one because I knew it would be in there, and I wanted to use the, the most recent version. And so right, right now, we're going to watch the clip that when I saw this for the first time, uh, somewhere around 20 years ago, uh, and a play that just ripped my heart out. And uh, you're going to recognize the story. It's the storyline story in Les Miserables, where uh, Jean Valjean has been caught stealing from the priest. And so, and this is the story of how all that came out. Let's watch this. Put him down! Stay there! 
Monsignor, we have your silver. We caught this man red-handed. Hear the nerve to say you gave him this. That is right. But my friend, you left so early. Surely something slipped your mind. You forgot. I gave these also. Would you leave the best behind? Monsieur, release him. This man has spoken true. I commend you for your duty. Now God's blessing go with you. But remember this, my brother. Seeing this some higher plan, you must use this precious silver to become an honest man. Hmm. What a scene, huh? He was guilty. He was caught. Authorities bring him in in chains, and the priest sets him free. Not only did he set him free, this is the beautiful part of this scene, is he gave him more gifts. He gave him riches. And that's the picture of what God does for us as well. He not only sets us free, but he gives us the riches of heaven right along with our redemption and the riches of living with him on this earth while we get to still be here. He paid the price and he set me free. Second thing is this. What did Jesus accomplish on the cross? He covered my sin. God covered my sin. Paul wrote, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, that word atonement is a key word in uh, the Christian faith and Christian doctrine and understanding the theology of the whole thing about the cross, about why Jesus had to die. Atonement basically means to cover something. Atonement means to cover something. Now, the word atonement in the Old Testament is the word kippur, and then the Jewish tradition has a holiday called Yom Kippur, and that's the day that they celebrate the Day of Atonement. If you want to read about this day, you can go to Leviticus chapter 16. Just Leviticus chapter 16. You can read that maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, and you can get an idea of what I'm going to talk about right here. There are two pictures of atonement in Leviticus 16. I only have time for one today, one of the pictures. So here's the deal. God was giving instructions and as part of the instructions were that once a year they would have this day when the priest would come, the high priest would come and the priest would offer a sacrifice at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and then offer this sacrifice at to, for, to cover the sins of the people. So to cover the sins of the people. So one thing you need to understand, it wasn't permanent, and it, uh, but yet it covered. So it wasn't permanent and it covered, so they had to continually do this. So the idea was, is that Aaron, he was the priest who was getting ready to do this, Aaron was told that you need to take a young bull and two goats. I'm not covering the goat part today. I just want to cover the, the young bull part. He'd take the young bull and that you were to sacrifice the young bull, slit the bull's throat and take the blood. And then as you go into the 
tent of meetings in the tabernacle, there's a specific thing you were to do with this blood to cover the sins. And so you would go in and what he was instructed to do is he was instructed to go in and he would take on the east end of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, this is the place where they kept the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant. On the east end that he would place a drop of blood and he would place a drop of blood on the front of it. And then he would also uh, drop seven drops of blood on the top. It's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is just the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. So here's the idea. The idea is that God would come and he would hover as a cloud over the, over the tabernacle. And he would look down to the tabernacle and he's looking down the tabernacle. He would see the law. He would see the 10 commandments. And immediately what he would see is his people's lack of ability and willingness to be true to him and obey everything he said. So he would see their what? Their sin. And what would happen is, is he would, this blood covered the top of the mercy seat. And so when God would hover over the Ark of the Covenant, he would not see the sins of the people because the blood covered that for this one time. Now we get to the New Testament when Jesus died and he shed his blood and Jesus covered our sin once for all time. Once for all time, it's covered and it's taken away and God no longer sees our sin. So when Jesus came and he went to the cross, what did he accomplish for us? He covered our sin so that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us as sinners. He sees us in a whole new way. And that's the beauty of this whole idea of atonement when Jesus came. Okay, so he took our place and covered our sins. He set us free, and he covered our sins. The third thing that he accomplished is he accomplished this. He declared me clean. He declared me clean. So Paul says it this way. He says he did it to demonstrate, and if you wanted to use other synonyms, uh, you could use substantiate or authenticate. So he did it to demonstrate or substantiate or authenticate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so this is the doctrine, the doctrine of redemption, doctrine of atonement, and this is the doctrine of justification. Justification. And the best way, I think, to explain this, the way that it's always meant so much to me, and I've never forgotten it, justified, just as if I'd never sinned justified, just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd never missed the mark, just as if I'd hit a perfect score every time. I'm justified. So he sees me now as what? Perfect. And so because I'm perfect, I have a right relationship with him, and I get to live in community with God, the perfect one, because of what Jesus did, just as if I'd never sinned. He made my scorecard perfect. He made me clean. Now, when we talk about this thing about being made clean, is that I know my own personal tendencies, as well as I get to talk to a lot of you about your tendencies as well. It's really hard for us to see ourselves as clean. A lot of us live with our memories of the past, our regrets, images of things we've done or things that other people have done to us, and we have a hard time with this. But Jesus came that you could be free from that, justified, made clean. So because I know this is an issue, the week after Easter, 
I'm going to start a series that's designed to help us. It's called Unstuck. Help us to get unstuck of the way we see ourselves and learn to see ourselves the way God sees us so that we can see ourselves as clean and complete. Okay, last one is this. What did the death of Jesus accomplish for me? He revealed his love. God revealed his love to me on the cross. That's what Jesus accomplished there. Romans 5.8 says this. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So he, said, he came, he said, I'm gonna, this is my plan. I'm going to give my son, and I'm going to give my son to people who are still not right with me so that they can be right with me. And knowing that some will not accept what I've done. Not accept the reality of the cross. See, the cross, folks, is the clearest example we have of God's love. The clearest example. Jeremiah said it, Jeremiah, I think it's 31.3, says, God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So when you look at the cross, when you think about the cross, where I'd like to ask you to change your thinking is that instead of seeing an instrument of death and torture and separation, that you would look at the cross and you would see instead an image of love and life and community with Jesus Christ and the God Most High. That's the cross. That's the reality of what we get to experience. So then the last question, how do I receive God's gift of grace? How would I accept that for what, I, you know, what he's done for me, for myself? How would I accept that? Well, here's the answer. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, the message of, message of the cross is so simple. You can have a right relationship with God. God made it possible. And your choice is to receive it or reject it, to believe it or not. And it's just through believing that we can receive it. I ask you to bow your heads and let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the clarity of the reality of the cross. That you didn't leave it up to confusion or uh, up to us to determine on our own what you meant by the cross, but you showed us clearly. You spelled it out for us. I thank you for Paul and his writing and how it has impacted me and many in this room. So I pray now, Father, that you would as we think about this reality that there are some in the room who've never said yes to Jesus. They've never said, I believe, before. And today they can. Today they can choose. So if you want to, and you never have, you just say, Jesus, much as I understand it, I believe that you are the Son of God, my Savior. Yeah, I've sinned. I confess those sins to you. I feel deep sorrow in my soul for what I've done. I ask you to forgive me on the basis of the blood that was shed on the cross that my sin can be covered.
cleansed, made whole, born again. I'll live the rest of my days for you. God, for those of us who have said yes to Jesus at a certain point, we get so far from the cross. The further we get from the cross, the more anxiety we have, fear, compulsion, addiction, lust, anger, hurt. And I pray today as we come back to the cross that not only can we see we're forgiven, but we can see that we have power for living. That we can be all you've made us to be. And I thank you for this awesome picture. And Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the cross. I'm going to ask if you'd stand, if you would. We're going to continue our prayer, and we're going to sing together. And the reason I'm asking you to stand is because the first line of the song says, I stand. And so let's stand and sing this together, okay?
Thank you so much. We think about what you did. It's just overwhelming. And I thank you for this gift. And God, I pray that, um, that we would, as we listen to these words today, that our hearts would be tenderized toward you, toward our own condition. And God, we'd be so grateful and thankful. Father, I pray that as we move toward Easter, that it would just be the catalyst for an Easter that would be beyond belief, that it would be one we'd write in our journals about, one that we put on our calendars. This is the season that God spoke in my life in a way that has changed me. Father, I pray that you would give us a boldness to speak out to other people about the cross this week, inviting them to come to Easter services as we get to hear about the resurrection, your stamp of approval on what your son did. And we just thank you, Jesus, and it's in your powerful, amazing, and precious name we pray. Amen.